Welcome to this special episode of the Doctority Plastic Surgery Podcast. We are collaborating with the Time's Up PRS initiative, which promotes diversity in plastic surgery education and leadership. In this series, we will be interviewing plastic surgeons about their career paths and learning about the experiences that led them to become the successful surgeons that they are today. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Marco Ellis, who's an assistant professor in the Division of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois. Dr. Ellis specializes in cosmetic and complex reconstructive surgery of the face, ranging from revision cosmetic surgery and jaw reconstructive surgery, but his practice also spans the full spectrum of plastic surgery, including breast surgery and gender-affirming surgery. Dr. Ellis, thank you so much for speaking with me. Uh, Thanks for the invitation. Looking forward to it. So I would love to start hearing your story, starting from childhood and kind of bringing us all the way up to how you decided to pursue a career in medicine. I don't have a typical sort of introduction. I wish I had uh, some father figure who was in medicine and followed in his footsteps. For me, I was a bit of a trailblazer in my family. I'll start off by saying that I'm an army brat. I grew up on several military bases. I was born in Germany, lived there for a year, and I felt like I had a bit of a nomadic lifestyle. I slowly made my way and considered myself to be a Northeastern type person, despite graduating high school in Oklahoma. I think cumulatively, I spent more time in Virginia and the suburbs of D.C. compared to any other place, which includes Alaska, for example. I think a typical childhood, father was in the army, mother was a school teacher, and I'll admit a very strict household, which I enjoy and carry with me and even bring to my family now. I was very involved in sports early on. And if anything, I felt a small pressure to pursue the math and science fields. My father was an applied mathematician type engineer within the military. My brother went on to college and majored in architectural and civil engineering. So I think I had a small bias towards that. And as I found my way through high school, really enjoyed the life sciences. But if anything, I thought I would probably do biomedical engineering, starting college at the University of Virginia. And it's interesting, the night before I was to, to go to college, I had some weird dreams. I was tossing and turning. This is actually a true story. And I, something told me, what you need to just go to the traditional arts and sciences, do something biologic science or chemistry, and engineering is just going to be a bad pathway for you. I don't know what I watched that day on TV or what I had to eat, but literally the next day I called up every administrator I knew and uh, somehow left the School of Engineering and, fi- and made my way into the College of Arts and Sciences and, and then took it from there. So it was uh, a last-minute choice, but one that I'm, I look back on and, and really enjoy and led to where I am. But if I have to be honest, more than likely, I would still be in the same place. I have several friends who did biomedical engineering. There are current residents in my program who had a biomedical engineering background. So nonetheless, I, I went through college and had a great time at UVA involved in a variety of activities. Uh, I was in a fraternity. And if anything, as I try to determine my career pathway, I don't have a good explanation why, but I was just drawn to what I felt was the hardest you know, pathway, a foolish way to, to aim your, for yourself in life. But I just saw so many students in, who were pre-med just look so serious and so thoughtful. And I gravitated towards that mindset and majored in biochemistry and then basically pursued medical school in a more formal fashion. What I did really enjoy in college, and, then, and I think it set the stage for my time in residency and my early times at Northwestern on staff, is this commitment to bridge building and mentorship. 
even as an undergraduate student, folks can relate, but I created special programming because at the time it was absent to mentor and counsel other students uh, who are interested in medicine and specifically African-American students. There was just little to no counseling. It was almost as if each new applicant who went into medical school each year blazing his own path, which is really inefficient and a waste of talent. I did my best to create a system within our, it's called the OAAA, Office of African-American Affairs at the University of Virginia. We've basically pioneered and created a system to recruit and help undergraduate students find their way into medical school. So that's been a passion that I guess from my earlier times that I've tried my best to continue at different points in my career. And if anything, I hate to say it, I I do it primarily out of selfishness. And and it's because I want, I just want some friends. I know that sounds ridiculous, but when I'm in my program and I'm doing my thing, gosh, I just want to see people who look like me. That's always been the primary motivator. And yes, ultimately I have this altruistic understanding of what we're trying to accomplish. But, you know, really that was the biggest reason. I was like, man, there is no one that I can study with for the MCAT because there's no one else that's applying. Or if there are, we, we're not involved in the same activities. We don't know each other. There's no cohesion. As much as I could in, I tried to build that and hopefully impacted a few people's lives. But from there, University of Virginia was sprawling, beautiful campus, almost exurban or suburban type campus. And I knew that I needed to be in a downtown environment for medical school. I applied widely, but I knew for the most part I'd find myself in the Northeast. And I am ultimately very pleased with where I ended up, but getting into Harvard and, ex- and matriculating there was great, but I also was accepted at the University of Pennsylvania, and I sometimes wonder what my outcome would have been, who I would be if I had, had gone there, primarily because I was enrolled or to be enrolled in the business school and actually had quite a bit of early interest in consulting and medical management and was even offered sort of financial aid and scholarships to go to Penn, but I had to be honest, I was just drawn to the bright lights of Harvard, and that's where I ended up. But I did continue with that interest as I started medical school. Enjoy clinical applications of medicine, understand physiology and and basics, but I always had an interest in medical management. Just trying to understand how hospitals work, how our devices evaluated, how just the inner workings. And after my first year of medical school, while everyone else was doing exciting research projects, basic science, translational research. I was actually working in the office of the president of Mass General for my summer rotation, whatever we call a summer internship. And it's because I really thought carefully about that being my primary impact, being the more ideal fit for me as a career. But I was surprised as I entered my second year of medical school where it becomes just a little more clear. You're actually seeing more tangible, you're getting more tangible understanding of medicine and not just conceptual biochemistry and pharmacology, you're getting a little more tangible understanding that I was truly drawn back to medicine proper. I thought having a medical degree would just make me conversant, you know, have a different insight and still allow me to go into medical management or consulting. But I just fell in love with traditional medicine and all those things fell by the wayside. And it was an exciting time for me. This is at least in Boston at the time because we we didn't have a lot of longitudinal programming. Basic science, first year, second year was more problem-based learning and, and then learning your physical diagnosis, physical exam. And getting into the operating room as a second year student, I just felt like this is where I need to be. It was just very clear. 
it's just the most relaxing place for me and my personality and what I hope to offer and help patients. And I just remember seeing so many other students at the time doing their surgery rotations, suffering or just hating the hours. And for me, I just felt like I was at home. And I remember we have these little, we call it patient doctor experience where you have to write little self-evaluations as you go through certain rotations. And for me, I just remember thinking that this is a sport for me. And I was, I'm a big athlete and I enjoy competition. I just felt like this is, it was just a great place. To that point, it just a matter of trying to find the right specialty, subspecialty. I didn't come in like most current plastic surgery medical students, knowing that that was my plan. For me, I just slowly evaluated each subspecialty. I had buddies who did urology. At the time, I was drawn most to general surgery. And it was part of this sadist way of thinking about it, but I just saw the general surgeons at Mass General just being so smart and having so much responsibility and technically sound. I just thought, gosh, these guys are working hard. Everyone respects them, especially the chief resident in general surgery. Like, I want to be that person. That was my aim. I was like, I'm just going to do general surgery. This is going to be a great fit for me. I'll find some sort of subspecialty later on. But fortunately, I had a one-week selective, whatever you call it, in plastic surgery, where I had a chance to work with Jim May at the time, who was the chief at uh, Mass General. And I just enjoyed his energy. He was a classic Southern gentleman from Kentucky, wore bow ties, you know, a very special kind of breed of plastic surgeon that I think has almost gone out of style. But I just really felt at home in the plastic surgery division and thought that I needed to explore it. So if anything, I was late to the game. I truly feel like the position I'm in right now is a combination of some application of myself, obviously, but uh, right place, right time, and having great support system to help me uh, actually get into a, a residency program because I didn't formally decide I was going into plastic surgery until the summer of my third year, which is basically blasphemy nowadays. If I saw a student with that same interest right now, I would tell them, wonderful, let's go ahead and organize your year off. There's just no way you're going to make it happen. Uh, without developing relationships. But fortunately, I was able to do that. And I think it was because I I was a hard worker. I think it was because I was very humble and sought a lot of help. I sometimes feel like that may have actually gone out of style a little bit. For me, I knew I was over my head. So pretty much anyone that I was around, I just asked for help. What do I need to do? Where should I rotate? What's the timing of my rotations? Which faculty do I need to try to work with? So I constantly sought advice. I just had a meeting with a medical student 10 minutes ago, and that was the same sort of words of advice, of trying to just build this village for yourself in order to make things happen. I was fortunate enough to have some good mentors in medical school who I think saw my promise, despite the fact that my application wasn't MD-PhD with 20 first author publications and companies started and classic desirable traits that we see nowadays. I didn't have any of that. I just, if anything, I was a, just an old school, old soul, enjoying working hard. These were the days of pre-rounding. And I lived just far enough from the hospital that the buses didn't run early enough for me to get there in the morning. The train, the T didn't run early enough for me to get there in the morning. So I would run to work. That was my exercise and my transportation. So I would run to work, shower quickly, pre-round and then round and go to the OR. It was hard, but it felt like this was right. And I think people could see that in me and uh, gave me letters of recommendation you know, for myself. Fortunately, Elof Erickson, the former chief of the Brigham, 
Jim May, the former chief, and Andy Warshaw, the former uh, chair of surgery at uh, Mass General. They helped sponsor me, and I think having those names, I think, smoothed over some of the cracks that I might not have had. And I'm in debt forever for their support. And that's what, as much as I try today, do the same thing for students. Things that I've now, you know, been able to accomplish once in residency at Northwestern is, again, I kind of fell back into my little selfish mode that there was no one like me. I just felt like I was by myself. And when I say like me, I mean in terms of ethnic sort of background and race and cultural sort of leanings. I just didn't see anybody that I could. It wasn't instant friendships like I think others do when they start a residency. For me, when I started, I think per year at the time, this is 2005, there were maybe 150 you know, interns at the time. There was myself and one other guy. He was in the interventional cardiology program, Dave, and it was just the two of us. And maybe throughout the entire graduate medical program here at Northwestern, which is a thousand residents and fellows, maybe a handful of black and African-American uh, residents, which just didn't make sense to me. I, I didn't understand it. So I worked diligently in a cold call fashion. There was no programming. It's not like I'll just call up what we currently have, which is the diversity, equity, inclusion office. That, that didn't exist. So I basically just emailed people saying, hey, you know what? I want to try to work to help recruit more students here, more, more medical students. How do we make this happen? And right place, right time. I was fortunate enough to have some members in the GME office who also thought that was a priority. So this was around 2008, roughly my third year. The year I went into the lab, I was able to have a normal schedule and go to 9 a.m. meetings like regular people. So it was great to be able to work with the Graduate Medical Education Office and create programming from scratch without a budget. We started to work carefully to have a presence at the student, at SNMA, the Student National Medical Association annual meeting. We worked to create a scholarship or stipend for African-American students interested in away rotations at Northwestern to help subsidize their travel and housing. We created a forum, an association for African-American students called, uh, it's a quite an awkward name, Northwestern Medicine Underrepresented Residents and Fellows Forum. That's the worst name ever. They didn't ask me on that one. So anyway, we were able to create InMurf, that is literally its name, it's terrible. We were able to create InMurf, the stipend. I just was eager to help, you know, so I was a bit of an ambassador in as much as whenever there was a student that any program was trying to recruit, I became the person to give them a call because with rules and regulations, program directors can't call applicants. So I became that person. They say, hey, Mark, can you reach out to Linda, who happens to be our current diversity assistant dean. I remember when she was a medical student at Howard, they were like, hey, can you reach out to her and let's see what we can do to help recruit her and have her join our program as an orthopedic surgery resident. So it was a special time in residency. Yes, I had a chance to do plastic surgery training, you know, which we can talk about and what kind of surgeon I am today. But as I reflect on probably my more important contributions at Northwestern, it's been helping residents matriculate and, and improve retention here. That the holy grail is raising our faculty rates. That's where we're, we want to be. But I am excited to know that I've done my small portion over the last 15 years. And I thought it was quite special. When I graduated residency, I remember Dr. Damani in the middle of Grand Rounds one day, Dr. Damani and our current uh, division chief, he's like, hey, Marco, uh, 
hey, we, we need to leave. I need you to walk with me. I know we're leaving Grand Rounds early, but just walk with me over to the GME office. I'm like, okay, this is weird. That's not a common thing. So I walk over to the GME office and uh, into a conference room, and it's like a surprise party, whatever you want to call it. You know, it was a surprise in the sense that some of my residents were there, the GME staff was there, a few other sort of nice representatives in the hospital, and they gave me a plaque basically trying to recognize my contributions over my time as a resident and had the, I don't know why, but they named this diversity award after myself. They named it the Marco Ellis Legacy Award, which made me feel like I was, it was an obituary or something. You know, that was very, that sounds like a, a posthumous award, but nonetheless named for me. And that was a really special time. If anything, that was probably the most unique day of residency. Like we all have our trials and errors and successes, but to be recognized you know, for that uninitiated type of participation is nice. It was largely selfish. Just wanted to get more people so I can hang out with and we can have some parties. That was the, the true primary focus. But I think we accomplished some good things and hopefully laid a foundation for what we currently have in Northwestern. And I think we rival anyone who wants to claim they have the best setup. We have Office for Minority Affairs with the medical school. We have a medical school, diversity, equity, inclusion position, an assistant dean, or several assistant deans in that role. And then within the hospital proper itself, there's also an equivalent in Clyde Yancey, our chair of uh, cardiology. I think we did some good things. I admit now clinically I'm too busy to have a heavy-handed role as much as I would like, but one thing that we have started, somehow I'm always the, a founding member of things, I don't really know why, but we started the Minority Faculty Affairs group about two years ago. And we now have an enrollment of probably 50 underrepresented minority faculty throughout the hospital and the medical school where we get together and talk about, you name it, promotion, tenure, guidance, research, just socially hanging out. So that's a boon. And I'm hopeful that will lead to more recruitment of faculty, whether it's in the Department of Surgery or other subspecialties at the hospital. So it's, it's been a unique journey for me that uh, has been quite special. That's incredible. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Even if you, like you said, your role has gotten a little smaller as you've gotten more clinically busy. I think there's a reason they call it a legacy award. It's really setting that foundation that inspires others and allows them to build upon it. Focusing back a little bit to then what happened with your path after residency, I would love to hear a little bit more about your decision to choose the fellowship that you did and then your experiences once you returned as faculty. My clinical interests, you know, I don't know if I can pinpoint the origin of them. I think I've always enjoyed head and neck surgery because when I was a trainee here, it was scary. Most of the surgeons that I worked with either had an unrivaled understanding of anatomy or they had none. And I got a chance to work with both. And to me, it was like, gosh, I want to be able to master this anatomy. How, how can I do that? And that's what propelled me to use my year off in the lab to work with Praveen Patel and the Shriners Hospital, looking at that time, primarily virtual surgical planning. And around 2008, while it's mainstay today for complex facial reconstruction, it, was in, it didn't exist. It was in its infancy. It was it was a protocol people were considering. It was piloted in a couple of programs across the world. I would say the leaders at the time were in Germany. So we helped to create a industry relationship 
such that now, anytime you want to do a complex bony reconstruction, hey, we have a segmental mandibulectomy, you just dial up Stryker, Biomet, Zimmer, Synthes. You basically just dial them up and say, hey, I need this surgery done, and they can just spit back the type of equipment and constructs that you need. So we had a chance to work on that during my time off. I used that momentum to you know, find a fellowship position. For me, my clinical interests, even as a resident, were always working more so with adults and head and neck anatomy, head and neck surgery. There are a few plastic surgery fellowships that embrace adult craniofacial surgery. I would say largely anything that has the word craniofacial surgery in our specialty is pediatric, and there is a small percentage of which is done on adults. At the time, may have evolved over the last 10 years, but there were only two fellowships that had at least 10% by volume adult craniofacial surgery as opposed to zero or 5%. And they were Mass General with uh, Mikey Rumchuk and at the time Hopkins uh, Shock Trauma with uh, Ed Rodriguez before he left to go to NYU. And I looked at them both very carefully and I was just drawn immediately to Baltimore, not the city, but the training there. It just offered the best of all worlds for me. I was looking for something that was a ACGME accredited fellowship as opposed to a one-on-one observership with a surgeon. I was looking for something that would give me as much adult experience as possible. And at uh, Hopkins and Shock Trauma, you get about 50-50, which is something that is nearly unheard of. It was a great time. I always tell residents interested in advanced training that your fellowship is really a finishing school. You don't really go there to learn how to cut and sew. You already did that for six or seven years. Really, it's there to think and to understand sort of small points, finesse, background, understanding, background, sentinel articles, see some complex presentations. And that's what it served. And it was great. It was, it's, it gave me all those pointers. And I was fortunate at the time as I was finishing in Baltimore that there were a few positions that I could apply for. The one thing that you know, anyone applying into medical school and residency will see is that everything is a match. Oh, I'm a match in residency. I'm a match in fellowship. But when it comes time to actually getting a job, there is no match. It's just there are five jobs available and you have to go to apply to them all. And hopefully one of those five wants you to come. I was fortunate at the time that there were a few positions available. You know, Northwestern and, and at least returning to Chicago was the best fit for me, primarily because it goes back to what I stated beforehand. There were only a few people here who understood detailed facial anatomy. And I felt like, hey, I just got these skills. I need to, why don't I come back where it's undertaught, you know, in our curriculum. So hopefully it's been a positive addition. How would you say your background and experiences have informed how you work with patients or how you work with faculty and or your mentees? My demeanor, my disposition at the hospital, I like to say is uniform. I try to give everyone the same respect. I don't ever feel like I'm in this hierarchical position compared to someone else. But is that potentially from my upbringing, which is because it was a very strict household? I knew my place, likely. But I think if anything, I try to treat people, it's very basic, but you just treat people as human beings. Everybody has their own life and they're all special and they, they're going to end up being the, the grandfather and grandmother of some big tree of people. You have to just try to treat people nicely and give them the attention they deserve. For me, if there's anything that I do differently as I see patients in my office is I do quite a bit of listening. It's very easy to walk into an office when you have five minutes and you need to do an exam and develop a plan to just over-talk the patient. I try my best to always listen as much as I can before we get to the business. And then I try also to teach. If there's any time I've had complications with patients ever, it's because of miscommunication. 
and not helping them understand the background of the problem. What are the consequences of inaction? What are the consequences of doing surgery? What are some alternatives? I just try to make that abundantly clear. And it's always rewarding when I hear patients say, oh, goodness, doctor, I've had migraines for five years. Now I actually understand why I have them, despite having seen 10 different physicians. That's always a kind of a special moment for me. I would say my style, if anything, and it's a little kind of funny aside I tell people, the best way to mold yourself is to observe others and how they treat people. And you can take little bits of them. And I think, if anything, what you gain more from is not seeing someone who has this magical charisma. It's more the people who have terrible bedside manner because you actually get to understand and just see the awkwardness and see the just the horror of it and take that with you and say, you know, I'm never going to I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to be the person that yells in the operating room. These are just little things that have dictated who I am today. If you do have one or a few pieces of advice for medical students and trainees hoping to follow in your footsteps, what would those be? I always preach two things which I've alluded to beforehand here in our conversation. You know, one is just the value of mentorship. And I tell every student that I see or any junior resident that I see that they need to create a team to help them. You have to have someone at every point giving you data so that you can feel like you understand all of the points of view, the different perspectives. So as a medical student, I say, hey, you know what? You're a third year student wanting to apply. Wonderful. You need to find out who is applying right now. Who are the fourth years? You don't know them? Great. Here are the names right here. You just need to email these people. There is this sense that, oh, I need to be introduced. And you just go straight to the source. You need to learn from the fourth years. You need to learn from the people who just matched. Within your own program, you need to, you know, talk to interns and junior residents and senior residents. And then similarly, you need to have someone that you can talk to as a junior faculty and someone who's a senior faculty person, whether they're program director or chief or chair. Our specialty is quite fraternal. And anytime you want to matriculate to the next stage, you have to have stamps of approval from several people. It's not just my medicine clerk person really liked me, so now I'm just going to be a cardiologist. I wish it was that simple for us to, to do that plastic surgery. For any one medical student that has matriculated from Northwestern, I've had three or four conversations with other people about them. It's just that's the nature of it. Everybody wants to know a little bit about who they're interviewing and, and who they're ranking. So it behooves you to then get to know all these people. So when they say, hey, so do you know Joe? Oh, of course I know Joe. You know, I see Joe every couple of weeks and we chit chat and he's told me a story and he's quite involved and sincere. It's just important to really embrace the specialty, to have the humility to ask for help and mentors who will steer you correctly. I can't think of any time that a person who has had a bad outcome say, you know what, doctor, the chief of our division, he told me to do these terrible decisions and that's why I'm here I am today. No, most people rely on their own instincts and say, you know what, I'm going to outsmart everyone and kind of trick the system and then lose. So you got to have help. You got to get some insight from others. That's just very appropriate in this game. And then the other is the earlier you can claim your interest, the better your pathway will be. It's an unfair system of medical school because medical school is designed to train medicine people. That's why it's called medical school. It's not called surgical school. You only have four years to kind of figure things out. And in the absence of actually making any choices, you become an internist. So you have to actually work against the grain. And the faster you can do that, the faster you can make that clear to yourself and then do all the things we were just alluding to, 
you're more likely to you know, get where you want to be. Well, I think that's everything I wanted to talk about today. So thank you so much for sharing your story and your words of wisdom. I know it'll be much appreciated by all listeners. Thank you, Dr. Ellis. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Doctority Plastic Surgery Podcast. Never miss an episode by subscribing to our show via your favorite podcast service and following us on Instagram and Twitter. For more podcast episodes and residency information, check out our website, doctority.co. That's doctority.co. We love feedback from listeners, so please contact us through the website or through social media with your questions or suggestions. See you next time.